Today we have Kat Hanna, master plan strategist on Lendlease's big Euston project in central London. We talk about the virtuous circle of how the right diverse questions propel more inclusive strategies, of how to best walk the talk of that vision with always meanwhile initiatives, and how we might ensure these valuable cultural and social uses are not just 3D marketing, but baked into a perpetually relevant piece of city. And we also get massively distracted by a very energetic puppy. So, hello Kat, thank you for joining me. Good afternoon. Hi Adam, good afternoon, thank you for having me. Very good. So, I have some questions for you. Uh, You and I have done a number of events together and there's always lots of things I wish I'd recorded. So, and one of the things I remember we talked about with the Campus Tribe event we did, we were talking about a people-first approach to urbanism, to, I know, your work at Lendlease, yada, yada, yada. And particularly, we were talking about building time to listen and build partnerships. And I'm interested in that, whether that's building, whether that's listening one one or workshops or maybe big data and I'm interested in how do we get the balance right of all these inputs so very good very good uh, opening question I guess to give it a bit of context I have the um, I guess the pleasure occasionally the frustration of working on a very long-term master plan um, and a relatively large scale one um, in my role at Lendlease, um, which is looking at the oversight development in and around Euston Station. And I think when you have a project, obviously, of that kind of timescale, one thing it actually does afford you um, is the ability to really understand, or at least try to understand, the area in which you're working, how it's changed over time, and also, you know, the people, um, you know, actually in, who, in whose neighbourhood, you know, you are actually going to be. And I think that's something quite important for us to remember. And I think, you know, and again, in particularly, it's, it's very apparent, you know, at Euston, um, we're not the first people to, uh, to go in and start speaking to people about, you know, their neighbourhood, you know, given, you know, the development at King's Cross and then obviously all the HS2 development that's been happening around the station, Local communities and both residential, actually, and business as well, because they've been, you know, very impacted, um, are, I think, all too familiar (laughs) with with hearing about these, you know, grand plans for their area. So it's that balance between, I think, making sure you're not just sort of repeating those same conversations again and getting to that sort of what we often kind of term kind of consultation fatigue, but actually also making sure you are really taking the time to listen and to understand some of those frustrations on the basis that really, you know, local people are generally the experts in their own areas. You know, if you want to ask why certain places are busy and others aren't, it's often that level of granularity, you know, that that you can tend to really get. But then I think going on to your point, you know, about, you know, data as well, it then really comes back to, you know, often this point of scale and, you know, how many people can you talk to how can you also understand how how views are for example changing over time as well um you know some of the, so whilst you can kind of get that depth often with conversations that one off conversation could for example be someone reflecting on you know it's been really bad weather recently. So they're saying, oh, actually, we don't use any of the public spaces. We don't really do that. Or maybe it's been amazing weather, so people are feeling very positive and they're talking about that. So you're not necessarily always getting, you know, 
I guess that really more kind of rounded view of of how how spaces, for example, are used, and that's obviously where thinking about you know data, you know, can be more useful. And I guess there's obviously the the approach in the middle, which is something a lot of us had to do during the pandemic, which is taking what would have been ideally face to face conversation and doing that online. And I guess we can maybe talk a bit in more detail about. I guess, some of the pros of that and some of the challenges as well. Yeah. It's interesting that, isn't it, that um, I find with our work, there's lots of, you know, the the, the data I have is, you know, often I, I, I don't know where to look. I don't know what questions to ask. And actually it's often the conversations, the workshops that can help us aim our research. But also the other thing is the impossibility, really, of predicting what's going to come next. And if you're looking at a project that's 10, 20, 30 years in the making, then how do you look at that? How I mean, most people think, well, how on earth can data help you do this? Because it's so predictive. And actually, so many of the people we're speaking to now will not be the people that will ultimately use the project in I don't know, a decade's time. What do you think about that? I mean, I think it first comes back to really stripping in a way is what is it we need to know or at least to be able to know at some point in the future to will enable us to develop a successful master plan? Um, and what are those kind of fundamentals? And this is in terms of, you know, more, I guess, from the kind of the design aspect I mean, you can then, I think, say, well, kind of of those things that we need to know, how much of that is, you know, that can be things, it can be, you know, desk-based research, it can be, you know, looking back at historical archives, and we've obviously, you know, done a lot of that at Euston in terms of how the station and its evolution impacted the urban context. But then it can then be more about, again, understanding how do people currently perceive the area? What are things that frustrates them? What are things they really like? And then because you can start thinking, well, what are maybe some of the common features that are occurring when we ask people what they like? What are some of the common challenges that are emerging? Are there certain things for certain demographics that are particularly challenging? You know, one thing you could probably say about Houston is it's not exactly, you know, child friendly, or especially when you look at areas, say, around, you know, the challenge of air pollution there. So really teasing out that... For different groups as well, there will, for example, you know, be some of those di- be some of those different concerns. And then I think it's understanding. Well, looking ahead, there are th- some things that obviously can can be measured. But again, there's often a tendency to say, well, one just because we can measure it, we should. And as you said, the risk then is often you end up with a load of data, but that's data. It's not necessarily intelligence. And then there's also. You know, I think what can be quite interesting is actually almost using that data as well to say, well, is that something that almost using it to maybe verify certain things you're hearing in conversations or it might be things that you hear in conversation? I think, is that really true that that's an issue? And it's more about how you're collectively building that understanding, you know, through, through the combination of various sources. And I guess that's the thing, isn't it? The collective bit. It's the it because it, I think what can often happen is these processes are too much of a, a a cascade or a waterfall, and people do there's there's firstly you know maybe there's the you know qu- rich data and then there's the big data and then a vision is created and it's often one after the other. But I think what you're talking about is you're using this to build your conversation and make it richer and more lively because you're constantly cross referencing. Is that right? Have I got the right? Yeah. 
I think there's, there's definitely a degree of that. And it's also, again, about understanding, I guess, what are the limitations of each method as well. So if you take, for example, let's say you've got a smart bench that can tell you how often someone is sitting down on that bench. And it's maybe one of these ones that's got some Wi-Fi chargers, you know, it's got some phone chargers and Wi-Fi access as well. And you want to know, is it going to be worth keeping that bench? Is it being sufficiently used? And you'll get, you know, you'll get some data on that. When is it most popular, et cetera, et cetera. But what you won't necessarily know is, well, who's using that bench and what does using it mean to them? For example, you know, is it an, old, an older person, an elderly person who actually uses it as a bit of a halfway point to have a sit down and just to take a bit of a break, you know, on their walk? Or maybe it's someone who on their lunch break or when they're feeling really stressed out at work and they need to go get a bit of quiet time, they're just going there for a bit of a sit down and it's where they might have a call with a family member or just sit and read a book. So the data will tell you that someone's sitting down there for seven minutes, etc. but it won't necessarily tell you what the meaning of that interaction is. And I think that's, you know, it's, and that's, I think, that's quite important, I think, really, if you're to understand, if you're really to understand how a place is working. So I think that's where the combination of the two can really matter. Mm. In terms of the working then, do are we talking then about almost a journey of many destinations? Because your body language here strikes me that it's very episodic in the way you're moving your hands. And we're talking about how things connect to each other in time. or uh, well, Because I, I guess often data like this it can become, I know Sidewalk Labs, for instance, all their work in Toronto, taking benches as an example, they had endless stories about benches or lampposts or, you know, the heights of sidewalks. But actually how this related to people's ever-evolving days and how it might inspire, I don't know, moments of serendipity, they had none of that joyful data. They just had lots of bench data. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, having bench data is absolutely fine. If And it's all about, again, well, what are you using having this greater level of understanding or information about use to do? And I think, you know, typically in, in a real estate context in particular, um, it's often about this idea of efficiency. You know, is space being used efficiently? Are we using energy sufficiently, for example? You know, are we using desk monitoring to make sure that we're not heating and lighting and air conditioning half a floor of a building that actually doesn't need it because no one's there you know so so some of those points around you know efficiency that's actually really meaningful and important for example in the context of say sustainability you know the better your understanding how well that real estate asset as a building is and isn't working you can potentially make some really valuable savings for that again you know with the energy probably i think being the most potent example. But I think there's, when there's this slight term just around kind of genuine, general efficiency, I think that's when it starts becoming a bit of, well, why, why do you actually need to know this? And I know, you know, I think with Sidewalk, there was a bit of pushback, I recall, um, in Hudson Yard in New York to it being used there because the attitude was somewhat, we're collecting this data because we it's our place and we can collect this data and it might make us help run a better place. Yeah. Which is great, but you can see why actually to really build trust with the people who are using what in their minds they perceive to be a public space 
It's also about sharing the really positive examples of, you know, how actually collecting some of this data is making it a better place rather than just saying almost, you know, we're kind of doing it because we can. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I I think that's the key thing too, isn't it? That, you know, what we're talking about here is there's things that are efficient and things that are effective, but there's another E word about being expressive. And ideally, you know, so many of these stories you're gathering are there to make it a, a richer exper- experience rather than one that's, you know, you know, using I don't know, less assets is more efficient and effective on the way. And I find that interesting, particularly in terms of research, that ideally, I suppose, if you're going to build partnership, and you and I have talked about this before, whether it's with council or partners or community, it needs to lead with those things that are going to take them to a completely different place. And I'm wondering about that in terms of what you're you're doing, because that is the, I suppose, the creative leaps, isn't it? There are some things that are about the auguring of all the information, and then there's some other things that are going to be a step above and beyond what anybody's asked for. And I'm interested in how these two elements come together. Yeah, I mean, I guess from a, thinking about it from a more kind of, you know, technical master planning perspective, you know, they're often, you know, there are the things that you need to, you know, obviously measure and assess and benchmark to understand the impact of the development. Um, and again, that could be, for example, you know, increased footfall that's coming into the area. That could be what's, again, the various types of environmental impact. Um, and again, obviously, for a project like Euston, there's quite a long and, you know, and detailed, you know, body of deliverables that will have to be submitted to show that we're taking all these things into account. But then there's also this question of well, how and to what extent can or even should we try to capture, as you said, I guess, some of those almost slightly more ethereal and less tangible, you know, impacts And often, you know, there is a, you know, I think there's an increasing, again, I think I'd say this probably across real estate in general, increasing appetite to try and quantify and capture and manage and assess, you know, what is a good place. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, in many ways, that's incredibly difficult. And arguably, I think maybe the more you try and do it, sometimes the further away you might get from what is a good place because again it you know overlooks the fact that you know what is good is means something very different to different people measuring a place will tell you certain things about how it's performing but i think we all know there are probably aspects of what makes a good place or what and if even if we're out to unpack that more of what does a good place even mean you know we might often talk about belonging you know is it somewhere i feel i belong is it somewhere i'd want to go back to is it somewhere I'd recommend to my friends or family? You know, we probably all have our own slight little litmus tests of what a good place is. So even if we were able to sort of, to be able to agree on that, the extent to which you could actually measure that, I think becomes very challenging and you, we end up then often, you know, there's often a lot of different indexes, there's a, a lot of mat- matrices and you wonder, you know, we know all this stuff arguably but is it actually helping us design better places yeah yes well i'd say that one thing that is often missing there is that understanding of the rich program that of course you know what developers and often because architects and engineers and people who spend that well it's capital expenditure rather than operational expenditure are ever so good in setting the stage but when it comes to 
the play itself and its lighting and sound and stagecraft, they don't often take that bit into account nearly so well. And often that's the key ignition point that makes for great places. And I wonder what you thought about that. I think I, I do agree and I don't agree. I think, and maybe again, being being very focused at the moment in my day-to-day on the kind of master planning process. A lot of what, you know, we're kind of focused on is, well, what are the fundamentals that you get right, particularly in terms of, you know, infrastructure, whether that's, you know, in terms of that could be public realm, that's key routes and spaces, that's thinking about digital infrastructure, transport, etc. all these things that, I guess, to, to use your analogy, creates that best possible stage. Because I... I'd like to think that to an extent, you know, places that are often very successful are those where you create the stage and people just get on with it and put on their own play. You don't you don't need you don't need this sort of, you know, there might be an absentee director, um, you know, somewhere. But actually people feel that they can do what they kind of, you know, within reasonable bounds, do what they want within that space and they can make it theirs and it can evolve over time. At the same time, I I think I completely recognise that you do need to be able to plan for places to adapt. And you also need to sometimes, you know, as a developer, be a bit more proactive in terms of helping people, for example, feel particularly welcome in what might maybe be a new place or a place that is new to them or a place that is actually changing in terms of its, its character and its personality and in order to be able to establish that, you need to be able to communicate it. You know, and the, the example that I'll often use, because it's kind of personal one that I kind of remember oddly clearly, is I grew up just outside London. I had probably been to King's Cross once or twice, probably doing a train journey to go and see family in Scotland. But apart from that, it was not a part of London. And even, you know, I did my master's in London. You know, you just, you just wouldn't go there. And then I remember going with a friend one evening when it was Lumiere London, which I don't know if people remember. It was kind of very big, you know, light festival all, all over London, but went particularly to the bit of King's Cross and went there and thought, wow, this is, this is, this is like a whole new neighbourhood. I, I, I would come back here and I have gone back there many times. Just, but it took something like that to make me actually go there in the first place. And then when I was there, I realised the extent to which there was so much happening there in terms of, you know, new bars, restaurants, general atmosphere. So, you know, those, those big set pieces, those investments like that can be really important. But then there's also, I guess, there's also thinking about, as well as the programming, it's, you know, how are you actually keeping up? What's often slightly less sexy than, the, you know, big light shows, but the day-to-day maintenance of these spaces as well. You know, we've all seen it. I think there have been a few things doing the rounds recently on things like green walls, you know, that can look fantastic in renders. But actually, unless someone is paying those maintenance costs, very soon look very, very sad. Um, you know, and landscaping is, I think, quite a common example of that. And again, you know, I mean, I live right by the Olympic Park, probably walk there most days with the dog. And one of the things I love about it is seeing, and obviously now it's autumn, you know, seeing how it changes with seasonality. And in many ways, you know, planting and landscape maintenance has almost, you know, you let nature do the programming and it changes in that way. And yes, there have been things done around, you know, improving lighting, adding new seating, you know, adding new outdoor play areas. And, and, you know, those things have evolved over time. But it also, 
it feels relatively uncurated. It's still got, there's still areas that have been left to be wild, which I think in many senses is, is quite important. And I do, I do sometimes worry this is maybe more of a personal concern that we, you risk kind of over curating spaces or over programming. And quite often they're maybe programmed from the perspective of what a relatively small demographic might find fun or interesting. Oh, yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that, that key point of, you know, you're talking about facilitating, not over-curating. You're, you're, you know, you're making room for it. You're giving a few catalytic moments to maybe help set the scene. But ultimately, you're getting out the way. And I completely also agree that, you know, there's nothing like kind of great pl- plant, planting and landscape to be the most resilient of all programmes. I think all we're talking about is you know, master planning for life, aren't we? We're talking about, and rather than, you know, it isn't something inert, it is there to be a constant stimulus, but yeah, on the terms of your community rather than you, the builder. And I think that is where, again, you know, the partnership point is really important as well, because it's thinking, well, rather than, you know, or as well as a developer on their own saying, we're going to curate this space with programmes in perpetuity, is actually work with some of those local, you know, whether it's, you know, arts organisations, small businesses, again, people who really know and are passionate about their area, and actually often whose livelihood is going to be quite dependent on the success of this area. You know, again, making sure those people are also brought on the journey to play that really important role. Because, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, places that are, are authentic, for example, and actually will the great way, I think, to, to ensure that authenticity is to work with people that are already part of that community rather than, you know, risking either maybe competing with them at worst um, or at best maybe just duplicating, you know, what, what, what they could have done. And, you know, I think that, that's, you know, that isn't always easy. It can sometimes require a bit of hand-holding because um, sometimes, you know, you're not necessarily, you know, you need to put the time in up front and invest in these partnerships and relationships and not, you know, you can't just sort of go, all right, here's your site. You guys sort it out and just leave. You know, it does need to be this, like, you know, we talk about this idea of stewardship, for example, and partnership as well. So it does, you know, I think the foundations of that do need to be put in quite early. Because it's also about building talent and capacity as well as just the capital for it. Yeah, yeah. Let me unpick. There's a few things there. So then, first, tell me a bit more about stewardship and how you. I heard it described the other day by. I did a talk with uh, Professor Yolanda Barnes, and she was talking about placekeeping rather than placemaking. Is that what you're talking about there? And if we're talking about that and authenticity, I suppose, how do we ensure that that's hardwired into the development in perpetuity rather than just in those early years? Two very good questions. So I think on the I think on the the place making place keeping I guess there are, there are probably a couple of of subtleties in that. And putting aside, you know, I personally don't hate the term place making that much. It is one I know a lot of people kind of take umbrage with, as it just being a bit of a, a kind of developer buzzword. But I guess you know the keeping part I think should in my mind have a degree about of how a place can adapt as well. And the idea of, you know, if you think of what it means to steward something, it is almost to kind of guide through various processes of change or transformation or needing to be resilient, 
Whereas the idea of placemaking almost maybe more has the idea of you've done it, you've done it once and it's done, um, which then can potentially pose challenges, you know, if and when circumstances change. You know, I think if you're not thinking about placekeeping, it means have you made adequate provision for about how a place is going to be maintained in the long term? particularly in terms of often, let's be honest, the money and the resources and the staffing, you know, that are needed to do that. Because again, you know, most places that end up, you know, looking what people might feel, you know, run down or shabby or poorly animated, etc. It's, you know, no, no one designed them <laughs> intending them to look like that. It's, it's often because, you know, there hasn't been this adequate provision made. There haven't been adequate agreements made between well, whose responsibility is this? both in terms of, you know, as you said, whether it's money, people, to actually make sure we're actually keeping to a certain standard of, of, of quality, really, and actually of quality of place. Yeah. So I guess that governance structure needs to be there within the original vision, because so often a, a vision, you know, it, it might be something that's often very visual, I find, and there is very little information about then how it's going to be run and what that ongoing, yeah, I suppose, governance structure, whether it's policy, licensing, planning, money, charter, whatever it might be. Yeah, it's it's a really big challenge. I think that question of what long term governance, particularly of, you know, public realm looks like. And, you know, at Euston, for example, you know, the governance question comes up a lot just in terms of, you know, what is within a station demise versus, I guess, well, not versus, but, you know, and then what is in a, you know, public realm or lend lease piece of, you know, demise. And then, you know, in the reality that all of this should feel like open and accessible and welcoming public realm. You know, and there was, I think, you know, those who were, you know, more in the policy world would have seen, I think it was last week or the week before, the Mayor of London um, has published some more guidance around a kind of public realm charter which kind of, in many ways, slightly aims to do this and sort of says, if you're submitting a planning application with a a decent amount of public realm, you need to make provision in in your planning application for how you're going to manage this place in the long term. And that's, again, both about both about quality of place, you know, again, but also about making sure that place feels inclusive and welcoming. So it's not necessarily, I guess, just about the kind of investment in landscaping or making sure the bins are changed regularly it's also well actually whose responsibility is it to make sure that that place doesn't become for example over securitized or that one demographic or user group maybe dominates it to the to the detriment of others feeling like they could belong and use that space so there's definitely you know there's so much increased conversation, I think, about how these spaces are managed, often because sadly we hear about when it goes wrong <laughs> and, and, you know, sometimes overlooking that actually I think for the most part, and I think actually especially if you compare the UK to, say, some cities in the US, as a whole, I think a lot of our public realm is pretty well managed. There are, you know, there are always going to be challenges, but it's something that I think is very much at the forefront of people's minds at the moment. And again, how do you make sure you get that balance of, responsibility and also resourcing right but say between public sector and private sector um and you know it, it's you know at Houston it's, it's not a question we're going to have the answer to overnight there are so many I think you know different scenarios and models to explore of you know 
how that can best work. But I think what it has to begin with is a clear sense of, well, what do we want this space to be like as a place to be? How do we want people to feel when they come here? What as a minimum does it need to do? You know, if you think about somewhere exactly like a station, you know, wanting people to feel when they arrive, they're, say, arriving into London from Birmingham, you'd want them to feel excited, but you'd also probably not want them to feel overly overwhelmed. You want clear wayfinding so they know where they're going. You want the sense of, you know, something that's welcoming and inviting to them. So once you, I think, get that sense of well, what a place, you know, should be like, is then stepping back and saying, well, what are the things we need to put in place, governance-wise, management-wise, resourcing-wise, that can ensure we get there? Yeah. Yeah, and and I think as you were talking there, it strikes me that that word scenario is really important here. I we, we had I had Amy Lemay did a podcast with me a few months ago, and she's obviously you know yeah. the night czar and thinking about the twenty four hour hours of the city, and particularly those twelve hours from six o'clock in the evening, and how we think about those scenarios in a way that speaks about a safe an accessible public realm that is supporting not just the people who are going home or going to a club, but also the people that work out there, of which there are, I don't know, I think it was 28% of the city yes. is working after six o'clock at night. And that's a scenario that's often missed, isn't it? It is. And it's, I mean, I think that whole point about thinking about how a place works over different times of day and night is a really important one um, because, again, as you said, it's not necessarily, you know, nighttime isn't just about pubbers and clubbers, you know, it is about a lot more than that. But also, again, you know, we know for Euston, it's been a particular challenge is this, you know, safety, security, lighting, all of these things as well. But it also, again, it affects, you know, broader groups. If you think of things like, you know, for a few months, oh, goodness sake, sit down, down. Come on. Down. Good boy. Good boy. Leave it. Right, see how long that lasts. You're going to leave it. Hmm? Might buy us some time. So I think, yeah, the, the meanwhile point is, you know, meanwhile I think can be valuable for a number of reasons. And I think, firstly, it's just showing that ability to deliver, um, you know, and not to just talk. And also not just about what you can deliver, but actually, you know, how you do it. To what extent have you worked with the local community doing it? Have you, for example, you know, made an effort to use local suppliers? And that? So it's almost a bit of a saying, you know, this is, this, is, this is who we are as developers. This is what we do. And it allows people, I think, to really to get a window on that. And hopefully, obviously, you would hope to showcase, you know, the best of the best of what you can do as a developer. So I think, you know, meanwhile is really valuable in that way. There's also just about recognising, again, particularly on long term projects, you know, where you have ambitions for what you want to deliver that will benefit local communities. Again, that might be, you know, new parks and open space. That could be new homes, you know, businesses, employment space, all of these factors. But actually, you can't deliver them overnight because, again, it's that long term project. But we're thinking, well, are there ways where there's a really acute need where actually we could do something that's meanwhile and that does at least address that? So we've seen, you know, a couple of examples for, um, of, say, temporary housing for homeless individuals, you know, that have been used on plots of land but aren't quite yet coming forward to development, you know, in part of the master plan. So, there's, you know, there's things like that that could be done. 
and again it's firstly just about saying look we know that this you know land is really not valuable in a commercial sense but just it's kind of wasteful if it's just sitting there and nothing's being done with it when we know there are people that are desperate for that land to be used in some kind of more productive way whether that's housing or employment space or play space so it's firstly just about doing that and then it's secondly it is just really showing an ability to meet some of that really critical you know need as well and then I think there's your point like you said about prototyping and I think you know you can say it's kind of prototyping in a few different ways it's I think firstly showing and often actually within a developer or within a business it can also be about showing internally that you can do something new or something different or work with a new type of partner you know and a, you know and do something that actually if this was massive at scale forever it would maybe be you know risk or capital output might you know be prohibitive but actually if it's you know quicker lighter cheaper it's kind of something you can you, you can at least give it a go i think it's also about that ability to evaluate as well yeah and again i think this is where it's particularly important from a from a say a engagement perspective of saying actually well we did this and you know what it didn't really work so we're probably not going to do that in the long term. And I think that's just as important as saying, you know, wasn't this fantastic? We're going to do this at massive scale across our whole master plan. Because actually having the ability to adapt when things don't work out how you'd envisaged, you know, is is equally important. And then I think the other point that, that the meanwhile, you know, can be really useful for, and we kind of touched on this with the King's Cross example, is helping to change, I think, how people perceive an area. And again, rather than that being something that waits until the sort of quote unquote final product comes along, <laughs> not that there's ever really such thing, but it's something you can start beginning to do earlier. You know, if again, if you take somewhere, you know, like King's Cross, you know, where people primarily thought of that, it's a station, that's it, just a station. And at that, you know, pre-development, not a particularly nice one or one I go to spend any time in beyond the kind of bare minimum. And actually what the meanwhile starts to do is to say, well, I'd actually go here if I wasn't getting a train because there's something on. And it just slowly, it's almost, you know, if you think about, you know, we all have certain places in our kind of mental map. You know, again, if someone said to me, oh, I've got half a day in London free between meetings, where would I go? You know, it's, you know, it's all, you know, what is it you want people to say about you yeah. around the dinner table at the pub as a place? You know, where do you fit into that mental map? And the kind of, different types of meanwhile uses can I think play a really important role in how you articulate yourself and I guess you know how you almost kind of impress yourselves on people's imagination really. Yeah do you think we're seeing a, a, a merging of rather than the plan long term of the master plan and the start now of meanwhile, do you think we're talking about a much more blurred and phased relationship of the two rather than one, one being the extreme of now and the other being the extreme of decades? Do you think we're going to master plans will be much more phased and much more adaptive, particularly in a post pandemic city where there's many asset classes we can't rely upon, can we? Yeah, I think it's it's a really interesting point. And I think it's both about probably how planning addresses the pace at which change happens and the ability to to respond to it. And then there's also, I guess, the design point as well, because, you know, there's, you know, at the moment, you know, we are, whilst there's been some changes, you know, it is still very much quite based on what asset class you're talking about. 
But then actually also design-wise, whilst we like to talk about, you know, something could adapt, you know, and we're talking a lot about, you know, adaptability or retrofit or refurbishment. But the reality is, is actually, unless that's been thought in often from the beginning, it can either just be often not necessarily possible in terms of having some of the basic infrastructure there, or actually, again, really quite expensive, whether that's in terms of money or even, you know, carbon as well, in terms of if you're having to do part demolition and things like that. So, you know, often, for example, there's this whole, well, you've got these massive offices in the centre of the city. Surely people, you know, aren't going to need all that space. Can't we turn some of it into homes? We definitely need homes. And putting aside whether or not I think that's the right thing to do, the reality is that basics around, you know, floor plates, servicing, entrances, security, you know, plumbing, mechanics, everything like that, MEP, you know, those buildings weren't designed for residential. So, you know, whilst it's a great idea to say, yeah, we should be able to do it. The reality is, is unless you're actually designing for that adaptability, it's going to be quite difficult. So I do think that's really one important lesson from the pandemic is actually how do we design our buildings to be able to respond a bit more? And then actually at a wider level, how do we do the same with master plans? So we talk about being mixed use, but we're actually not saying now, okay, in 10 years time, it's going to be this exact percentage commercial, this exact percentage residential and this much retail. Because actually, as you said, in 10 years time, we could be somewhere really different. So how are we able to do it where we're putting in some safeguards and guarantees, but actually being able to respond to the market, to changes in how we're living and working and socialising when it comes down to it. So we're not sort of locked down into a form of development that actually doesn't necessarily reflect our needs. Yeah, yeah. Structurally, then you look talking at uh, many different speeds of change within that in this more agile way of master planning. You've got almost like an activity scale. You've got a journey trail scale and then you've got your different hubs and some of them are, are much more a scrambled egg and some of them are much more kind of singular in terms of their assets. And I guess that's the, the richness that you're describing there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even, you know, just thinking about mix of uses at building level, you know, that's something that again, I think most people would now recognise on many levels to be a good thing, you know, to say have a building that has some people living in it, but also have some people working in it, and they may or may not be the same people. And it might also have some retail or a gym and a restaurant too. And I think a lot of people would say, actually, that's probably quite a good reflection of what city living could be like. And actually, it's also, you know, again, it's quite resilient. It means if suddenly everyone stops going into the office, you haven't got this building that's then just sitting empty. There's all these sorts of things. But again, actually, it's not something we actually always do that much. There are various reasons, again, you know, design-wise, financing, insurance, servicing, that don't necessarily make that as easy as in your head you kind of think it would be so again it's also realizing well what are the some of the barriers to flexibility we have at the moment and and how can we work around some of those yeah, yeah. it's this interesting point and i suppose then you know if if we were to have some i suppose takeaways for others in terms of reigniting cities right now i mean one of the, as i madly look at my notes i see things about facilitating and not curating i feel that we're talking about quite an organic master plan here that works at many phases and many speeds i'm seeing meanwhile as an opportunity to 
not just test and learn, but also build alignment and trust. What what other things should we pass on? I think a few key takeaways. And I think one thing that's been very apparent to myself, I think, during the pandemic is to to not ensure to ensure that you don't assume that your experiences and particularly your experiences of place are the same as everyone else's um you know and we often talk about you know people having had a good lockdown (laughs) And, and you know and or you know even all this discussion around you know the future of the office and return to work and actually for a lot of people the conversation about what's the office going to be like when they get back isn't a conversation they've been party to because they've been consistently going into work because they have the type of work that has required that and often the type of work that has been fundamental in keeping our day-to-day quite comfortable lives sitting working from home going you know so you know whether that's you know servicing and logistics that's the people who are making sure things are getting to supermarkets as healthcare workers all the people you know that we've we've kind of become to realize just how unbelievably reliant you know we are so again i think there's there's a challenge sometimes that you know sitting having these quite academic or theoretical conversations about the future of cities and the office and oh will i will i move to brighton or will i not you know <laughs> not to you know that's great but that's not representative of everyone's experience and again that's where it comes back to you know from a say a developer perspective really going out and listening to those people in your community to understand actually what their experience has been like because I think you can then start thinking well actually how do we make sure what we are trying to communicate and trying to deliver actually resonates not just to people like ourselves but you know but with everyone. What do you say just on that point, Kat? Because I know we're, we were summing up with you, but it's, it strikes me that what you were talking about at the very beginning is it's about being a good ethnographer, really, isn't it? It's about being open minded and objective. And I suppose that doesn't, it strikes me that it doesn't happen nearly enough in the built environment. That kind of taking the time to ask the questions without bias, to be objective, and to be a great ethnographer and I'm wondering why doesn't that happen nearly enough? It's a really interesting question I guess. Um, I mean I think why doesn't enough engagement or well I don't even want to use the word engagement I think let's use the word listening because I think that's probably quite an important one is I think quite often there is a reality that you don't necessarily have to in order to create what is seen as a successful product you know if you look at house prices and the rate at which properties have often sold in London there's sometimes I think been an assumption you can build pretty much anything in the right location and you'll be all right so you know why do you necessarily need to do that and then there's obviously the you know to what extent does it happen you know more from a a planning kind of side of things and it's often seen as you know something you need to do um, you know in order to demonstrate that you've sufficiently engaged and I think the reality is, is there is a load of really good stuff that does happen. You know, I you know, I know from just seeing, you know, people at work doing really great stuff with working with young people. Um, you know, just on Houston, we did a project probably a couple of years ago now about training up what we're kind of what, what sort of young citizen scientists. And it was actually about asking these young people to say, well, tell us what works and what doesn't work. You go out with a camera and take photos. You actually go out and interview your your school friends or your neighbours about your place rather than necessarily us just coming in and doing it. But again, a lot of that 
it does take time and it takes investment and it I think takes a a belief that actually and this goes back to the importance of partnership if we try and do all these things on our own we won't necessarily get it right and then actually you need to be bringing in new voices you need to be investing in new skills in order to get that long-term outcome that will actually really work I mean, that's a big point, isn't it? You know, diverse inputs to create richer outputs. It's a absolute virtuous circle. And so much of what you're talking about is partnership. And that partnership grows from that first conversation, doesn't it? You know. Yeah, I think going back to it, it's, it's really about relationships. And again, I think that's probably another big learning we've definitely had from, you know, the past year and a half is just, you know, the importance of them. And again, also having conversations with people that isn't necessarily about what's that immediate outcome or transaction but actually again getting to know people and building that relationship as well and you know there are benefits for us you know at Euston the fact that it is such a long-term project we also you know we have our office in Euston so you know we will spend time there as well increasingly more and more so you know the idea of building these relationships and networks feels very natural and we're also in an area which has a complete embarrassment of riches when it comes to its community, its institutions, its charitable, you know, its charitable organisations, you know, there is so much happening, which is say quite different to starting a project in an area which might maybe feel quite underserved in terms of, you know, sort of, you know, civic organisations or, you know, in terms of what's happening already. So I think we're incredibly lucky and actually we've got so many existing networks you know that we can tap into and it's almost us who are having to say hey guys like make come and find time to talk to us rather than the other way around which i think actually is probably the way it should be yeah i think that's great i i, I like that i like also what you're talking about about stepping forward to i i think you know we're a lot of developers and well, a lot of people i speak to they you know they they, they don't sort of I suppose, as you know, I'm interested in the live experience and how we master plan for that, how we ensure that it's it's diverse, it's accessible, it rich, it grows. And obviously a lot, a lot of people find that very hard to plan for that or think about how you design for that because they don't have, they're not from the world of hospitality or service industries or, you know, they're not impresarios, they're asset managers and they're going, I'm not used to this, you know, d- stop asking me to step forward. Yeah, and I wonder what you thought that about is that. a really big big point is you know do we have both the right people but also the right structures and mechanisms and actually do we have the appetite to kind of step forward and play that role I guess as kind of host um, as opposed to you know, asset manager or or landlord and I think you know it's and again back to this point of you know COVID has accelerated a lot of trends so you know we're talking now a lot more about this need to be really proactive and welcoming and create this really exciting sense of place but actually pre-COVID there was already for example you know in the offices world that actually just kind of rocking up every few years saying hi can you renew your lease please you know wasn't enough you needed to do a bit more than that you needed to be thinking about you know what a what are some of the amenities you're providing? Are you thinking about, you know, providing events? Is there networking opportunities? All these things that are, again, more proactive and not necessarily within the gift of asset managers. And, you know, there's a few ways in which, you know, 
as with any industry, when I think you see particularly outsiders come in and do it better, arguably, which is what you could say happened with a lot of the co-working operators, there's this feeling of, okay, well, what do we do? Do we either completely ignore it and just keep doing our thing and just hope that it's a flash in the pan thing and we'll still have our customers and it'll be okay? Do we partner with them? And there's been plenty of instances of that. Do we try and do our own thing in-house? Do we try and do our own thing in-house using the same people and team and mentality we've always used? Or do we think about, okay, we maybe need to think about who are the types of people we need in our business and how do we maybe over time build our capacity to move more, say, into that role of host? So again, there's so many different options for the extent, you know, to which you might want to kind of, you know, join the party <laughs> in that in that sense. And I think we'll see. I imagine I think this came up at an event you and I were at quite recently. We will probably see in the years ahead. Now there is this even more prominent, I guess, kind of flight to quality of office. You know, talking about you know you've really got to earn the commute. You've got to really give me a good reason to get out of my tracksuit leave my kitchen table and come into the office and not arguably you know not every single landlord is going to be able to do that overnight so it's you know it will be interesting to see you know what what that what that shift looks like it's interesting is it's a question of culture and like you say i know i keep saying the same thing but this thing of partnership i mean how you can create these visions where it's not you having to do everything but there is yeah. you know you're, you're you can hand the pen around and you're open-minded enough to be able to say right we're going to do this together but particularly if we're trying to attract people back to city centers it's not about every tower and every campus competing against each other they're going to need to work together aren't they exactly it's it's got to be a collective um a collective endeavor because actually you know if you go back to the whole point of what makes <laughs> cities great is it you're able to offer that choice that scale, that range of places that works for a range of different people. And unless you're getting a lot of actors involved, it becomes very difficult to deliver that. Yeah. I mean, I find that very exciting. The idea of that collective effort and the idea that it's, you know, always on and ideally getting better with each gesture. But it's, it's, it is a change of culture. And I think that's what we're looking at here. Yeah, I think going back to it, it's, it's really about relationships. And again, I think that's probably another big learning we've definitely had from, you know, the past year and a half is just, you know, the importance of them. And again, also having conversations with people that isn't necessarily about what's that immediate outcome or transaction, but actually, again, getting to know people and building that relationship as well. And, you know, there are benefits for us, you know, at Houston, the fact that it is such a long term project. We also, you know, we have our office in Houston. So, you know, we all spend time there as well, increasingly more and more. So, you know, the idea of building these relationships and networks feels very natural and we're also in an area which has a complete embarrassment of riches when it comes to its community its institutions its charitable you know its charitable organizations you know there is so much happening which is say quite different to starting a project in an area which might maybe feel quite underserved in terms of you know sort of you know civic organizations or you know in terms of what's happening already so I think we're incredibly lucky in actually we've got so many existing networks you know that we can tap into and it's almost us who are having to say hey guys like make come and find time to talk to us 
rather than the other way around, which I think actually is probably the way it should be. Yeah, I think that's great. I, I, I like that. I like also what you're talking about, about stepping forward to. I, I think, you know, we're, we're a lot of developers and well, a lot of people I speak to, they, you know, they, they, they don't sort of, I suppose, as you know, I'm interested in the live experience and how we master plan for that, how we ensure that it's, it's diverse, it's accessible, it rich, it grows. And obviously a lot, a lot of people find that very hard to plan for that or think about how you design for that because they don't have, they're not from the world of hospitality or service industries or, you know, they're not impresarios, they're asset managers and they're going, I'm not used to this, you know, stop asking me to step forward. Yeah, and I wonder I, yeah, what you thought that is that. a really big big point is you know do we have both the right people but also the right structures and mechanisms and actually do we have the appetite to kind of step forward and play that role I guess as kind of host um as opposed to you know, asset manager or or landlord and I think you know it's and again back to this point of you know COVID has accelerated a lot of trends so you know we're talking now a lot more about this need to be really proactive and welcoming and create this really exciting sense of place but actually pre-COVID there was already for example you know in the offices world that actually just kind of rocking up every few years saying hi can you renew your lease please you know wasn't enough you needed to do a bit more than that you needed to be thinking about you know what a what are some of the amenities you're providing? Are you thinking about, you know, providing events? Is there networking opportunities? All these things that are, again, more proactive and not necessarily within the gift of asset managers. And, you know, there's a few ways in which, you know, as with any industry, when I think you see particularly outsiders come in and do it better, arguably, which is what you could say happened with a lot of the co-working operators, there's this feeling of, okay, well, what do we do? Do we either completely ignore it and just keep doing our thing and just hope that it's a flash in the pan thing and we'll still have our customers and it'll be okay do we partner with them and there's been plenty of instances of that do we try and do our own thing in-house do we try and do our own thing in-house using the same people and team and mentality we've always used or do we think about okay we maybe need to think about who are the types of people we need in our business and how do we maybe over time build our capacity to move more, say, into that role of host? So, again, there's so many different options for the extent, you know, to which you might want to kind of, you know, join the party <laughs> in that in that sense. And I think we'll see. I imagine I think this came up at an event you and I were at quite recently. We will probably see in the years ahead now there is this even more prominent I guess kind of flight to quality of office you know talking about you know you've really got to earn the commute you've got to really give me a good reason to get out of my tracksuit leave my kitchen table and come into the office and not arguably you know not every single landlord is going to be able to do that overnight yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. you know it will be interesting to see you know what, what that what that shift looks like it's interesting, isn't it? It's a question of culture. And like you say, I know I keep saying the same thing, but this thing of partnership, I mean, how you can create these visions where it's not you having to do everything, but there is, yeah. you know, you're, 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 you can hand the pen around and you're open-minded enough 
to be able to say, right, we're going to do this together. But particularly if we're trying to attract people back to city centres, it's not about every tower and every campus competing against each other. They're going to need to work together, aren't they? Exactly. It's it's got to be a collective um, a collective endeavour because actually, you know, if you go back to the whole point of what makes <laughs> cities great, is it you're able to offer that choice, that scale, that range of places that works for a range of different people. And unless you're getting a lot of actors involved, it becomes very difficult to deliver that. Yeah. I mean, I find that very exciting, the idea of that collective effort and the idea that it's, you know, always on and ideally getting better with each gesture. But it's, yes. it's, it, but it is a change of culture. And I think that's what we're looking at here. It's also being, I guess, slightly more I guess what's the word maybe slightly more humble you know and just like we were talking about you know there's this assumption that you know if you built a house or built apartments in the right location they'd sell at a high price and you didn't need to to, to overly worry uh, you know about selling them at the same time there was often this assumption of you know you always get bums on seats in an office and Mm -hmm. you know the cat is now out of the bag when it comes to presenteeism it's not going back in um (laughs) People have voted so, with their feet and, uh, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, and people voted. are voting with their feet and, and they will. And I think that's not, you know, to say the response needs to be, oh, doom and gloom, cities are over, it's the end of urban life as we know it. Personally, that's not, you know, the path I buy. But it does mean we we do need to start thinking about what it means to actually be, you know, a place where people want to spend their time and to spend journey time getting there too. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think it's a really good point to close on. I think that, that, you know, being that thought of being a humble, learning from others, building those partnerships and being restless, because what you're talking about here is whether it's, you know, whether it's the way we learn in terms of making that that first vision or the way it gets better and better with time. You're constantly listening rather than just listening at the very beginning strikes me as what you're talking about. Oh, thank you so much, Kat. That was really great. And I think we might have just got away with those puppy attacks. Thank you. See you then. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Free Thinking Podcast today. Do subscribe so you know when the next episodes are. And do leave us a comment so we can get better and better. Thank you and see you soon.